welcome to The Detour. I'm Adam Davis. To this point on The Detour, we've only had human beings as guests. We've only recorded, edited, and published conversations between people. This episode, called Democracy of Species, is no different. We talk with two people, Robin Wall Kimmerer and Emma Maris. But what we explore in these conversations with Robin and Emma is the relationship between human beings and other beings, between humans and animals, humans and plants, and humans and the earth itself. We also explore human responsibilities to non-human beings. I don't know about you, but for me, it would be difficult to imagine a day without plenty of encounters with non-human beings. The sound of little brown birds as I wake up, leaves low overhead as I walk with my eager, willful dog, ornery crows barking at us as we return home. And this is all before the sun is up, and in the pavement-filled city. And these are only the most obvious ways my life affects and is affected by other beings, mostly on an individual level. Then there are the larger systems I'm part of and also shaping, even if I'm hardly aware of it. Roads, wires, cars, homes, water in and water out, and on and on. There are so many ways human beings and other beings shape each other's lives for bad and for good in ways we often fail to notice, let alone understand. Robin Wall Kimmerer and Emma Maris pay a lot of careful attention to how our lives are folded in with the lives of other beings and to the interconnections between these beings. Robin and Emma help bring to light all the beings in the world and how those beings, including human beings, relate to one another. Whether they're looking at mosses or sweetgrass, rats or cats, maples or wolves or humans, Robin and Emma are really good at helping us see our world and ourselves more fully. They're also really good at challenging us to reconsider our role in this fluid and dynamic web of relationships and responsibilities. Robin Wall Kimmerer is a mother, scientist, decorated professor, and enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. She's the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants, and Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of Mosses. Oregon Humanities reached out to Robin as part of our Consider This series on the theme American Dreams, American Myths, American Hopes, because of her efforts to expand how people think about nationhood and the responsibilities of citizenship, and because of the way she herself thinks, both scientifically and metaphorically, both critically and hopefully. Given the theme, American Dreams, American Myths, American Hopes, I want to note that the titles of your books and much of the meat of the books are about plants sweetgrass, mosses, many other kinds of plants, maples. And yet, there are words in those books like government and revolution and duty and democracy that show up a good bit. So as we ease into exploring the theme, I wanted to ask you right here at the start, uh, do you think of yourself as a political person as a sort of do you think of these books as political books maybe that's a way to start that's a good question i certainly didn't conceive of them as as political books <laughs> um but i understand of course that by presenting an alternative to the kind of dominant conventional western worldview it it, it certainly challenges colonialism challenges the status quo and invites us to to consider ourselves and how we organize one another in relationship to each other and certainly to the land in in in, in different ways. Um, so while I didn't intend it that way, I I, I am uh, often um, really grateful when when folks say, "Oh, this is a dangerous book," and I felt like, "Oh, great, <laughs> yeah." And dangerous, politically dangerous in some ways. Um, yes, dangerous in 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 in, in challenging. Or dominant thought patterns, yeah. Great. Maybe we can stay there a little bit. I'm curious, especially about dominant thought patterns around. So you just mentioned Maple Nation. And in Braiding Sweetgrass, you talk about citizenship of Maple Nation. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see citizenship of Maple Nation contrasting with or aligning with, say, citizenship of the United States. How are those kinds of citizenship similar and how are they different? Well, one of the 
the challenges that comes with thinking of yourself as a citizen of Maple Nation is certainly um, grounded in an indigenous perspective where we view, you know, American political boundaries as imposed artificial lines that sometimes divide our homelands and often divide our homelands. And But what I really mean by being a citizen is what are your shared values? And I think oftentimes our values fail to be rooted in the land. They're not often biocentric or life-centered values. They're more anthropocentric. Um, So by claiming citizenship in Maple Nation, I want to say I belong to a community bigger than humans. Um, I love my human community, um, but there are way more maple trees where I live than there are people. And those maple trees are are playing really important roles as community members. But to human people, they're often invisible. Well, they're just objects. They're just trees. But by claiming citizenship in Maple Nation, you give respect to the to the non-human persons and recognize, you know, our interdependence. In in a way, you know, when we think about um, sort of American political ideals, this notion of independence um, and that that a hallmark of our governance system is the Bill of Rights. And I think about a, a, a wonderful friend and, and uh, historian, uh, the, the late Chief Irving Paulus who, of, the, of the Onondaga Nation, who would talk about the fact that he said, when, those, when we met with the founding fathers of, of the American democracy, as, as they did, um, he said, they got a lot of things right, but they kind of messed up because they wrote of the Bill of Rights instead of the Bill of Responsibilities. And to me, that's one of the major contrasts between um, being a citizen of a, a political entity and being a citizen of a ecological entity that we're governed by our responsibilities to each other, um, not claiming individual rights. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so it's, those are already two powerful differences. One is, I think, a declaration of independence versus a kind of recognition and declaration of interdependence. And then also uh, a bill of rights as contrasted with a bill of responsibilities or even duties, which is another word you use. Mm -hmm. Uh, So can, can I ask you to, and you know, we're maybe not that great at talking about citizen responsibilities and citizen duties here in this country. We emphasize rights. Can you like what are what what should we be responsible for? What are the duties that we have as you see it? Mm. Well, duties to recognize that that nobody thrives unless everybody thrives. You know, as an ecologist, um, this this is what the land tells you. This is what ecological sciences tell you that that we are all connected. We are we are all related. That there is scarcely such a thing as an I. It's it's all a great big we, and um, so that's what I really think about is our responsibilities for sharing with each other, for respecting each other, for for in a sense nurturing each other's well-being, because an individual's well-being depends on the well-being of the whole. So I I can nod at that, and then I think about how I spend my day, and I wonder where I fall, uh, where I fall very short, where I fall somewhat short, how rare it is that I'm really thinking of the whole or thinking in a fully ecological way, the way you're describing. As you go through your day, do you feel like here is where I'm living into this vision and here are some ways I fall short? I mean, concretely, oh. how do you Yeah. You know? Oh, sure. All the time. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a dance, isn't it, between um, those things that pull us towards efficiency and productivity and all those things that the world demands of us um, and to back off from that and, and remember our responsibilities to each other in a, in a daily basis. You know, it really helps me be 
grounded in trying to live that out is always starting the day with gratitude, with, uh, you know, naming all of those beings to whom I'm related in, and, and not in a generic way, like, you know, when I'm standing outside in the first cardinal of, of the spring is singing, my thanks go directly there. And then I think, well, what's my responsibility to that cardinal? Um, and it reminds me to fill the bird feeder in, in a very um, tangible kind of way of reciprocity. You gave me a song this morning, and the least I can do is, is offer you some sunflower seeds. Um, that's, that's an easy one, right? But that's, for me, kind of a model of what I, I hope to be able to do, is to say, well, in, resp in return for the, the gift of being a scientist, you know, what am I going to do about that? How do I, how do I pay that back? Um, with my students, um, with my writing, um, you know, it's trying, it's, it's trying to hold yourself accountable to the gifts and, and to the privileges that you have. Um, do, do I do that 24 seven? Of course not. Um, it's, it is, it is an, it is an aspiration at, at which I, I, I often fail. Um, but the small acts of, uh, taking out the compost is my act of reciprocity with the soil that feeds me. Um, the, you know, putting solar panels on my house is a, is an act of reciprocity. Um, so there are big things like solar panels and little things like compost, but I hope that they all add up. <laughs> when you feel like you have everything you need, you don't necessarily need to go out and buy anything. I want to ask about, on the one hand, this really feeling and naming and recognizing all that we should be grateful for. And in your example, you refer to the Onondaga, for example. And there's, there's also real injustice that's been done. And to try to how to how to hold these two together, the sense of injustice on one hand and gratitude on the other. Hmm. I'm really interested that you're putting those in tension with one Great. another. Great. Because I don't necessarily find them so. The injustices, not only of history, but the continuing injustices associated with, with colonialism and, and, and the tremendous inequities, um, to me, they're separate things. The, the gratitude that we feel for our beingness, for our relatives, for the land is, is unchanging and grounds us in a way that allows us both to persevere through injustices and provides a kind of cultural identity and strength that lets you combat injustice. Um, when you have a model of, of abundance, I think it gives you a platform of more courage and resilience um, to do the work of healing, um, healing injustices. Um, it's a really good question. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to think about that some more. Okay. Thanks. I mean, it's interesting because this series theme is on dreams, myths, and hopes that are identified with, and we put the word American in front of each of those words. Mm -hmm. And hard to hear American dream without thinking about nightmarish parts of this country. It's hard to think of myths without thinking of ideology. And it's hard to think of hopes without thinking of those that aren't realized. And at the same time, going back to, for example, the questions that we received from people planning to join tonight, the word hope showed up in a lot of those questions. And uh, just interesting to note there, you were going to say something, please. I, w I was. We are in a time when we are so hungry for hope, aren't we? And we are we are looking for it in in many many places. Um, and so I think a lot about hope. And there's there's one part of me that that says that you know I'm a, by nature a really optimistic 
person who tends to see the the, the positive. Well, of course I am. I'm a, I'm a botanist. I hang out with plants, so um, that that colors one's worldview. But I am also have the great privilege of being a professor, of being a teacher, and I get to hang out and spend my time and and my energy with amazing young people who are um, so full of ideas and imagination and energy to um, participate in the the great turning uh, that Joanna Macy talks about, right? Of, of turning away from this worldview of of destruction to to one of, of creativity. Um, so I I am I am buoyed up by by my by my students for sure. But honestly when I think about hope I'm not really sure what that means to separate it from optimism. To me, I I find it, it hard to separate hope from love um, because I might hope for a certain kind of future and it might be wishful thinking, but it doesn't matter because I'm just going to keep on loving the world. And and maybe loving it harder in the in a damaged state in a wounded state right um and i think it's love that is going to help us make the transformation that we need and in and what's the connection between between love and hope is is when we act on the love that we feel um it, it seems to me that our, our, our great failing as, as a people over the last um, centuries is that we've really failed to love the land um, and failed to love the land enough in all of its fullness as, as a nation of, of tree citizens, not land as property and land as natural resources and, 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 and those kinds of myths. Um, those are good myths for you, land as property, um, land as, as commodity, um, but land as family, as responsibility, as, 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 as teacher, as identity, as sacred. Um, that's a kind of um, uh, love of land that I can get behind. And let's, let's stay with plants a bit. Um, you just talked about you went straight from talking about being a botanist who studies plants to being a professor buoyed up by students. And it felt to me like you were saying, in a way, the hope that you get from mosses, let's say, is in some ways quite like the hope you get from students. And <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I mean, reading Gathering Mosses, I felt like, yes, it was about mosses, but it was also about people. Mm -hmm. and about the relation between the two. Uh, while you were writing Gathering Mosses, like when you go look at moss, do you think about the mosses? Do you think about how the moss functions as a metaphor? Uh, how much is that an explicit part of what you feel like is going on inside of you? It all happens for me at the same time. Um, I... I mean, as a as a naturalist, as a scientist, I'm incredibly fascinated, of course, by the structure and the function and the ecology of mosses, and to say nothing of how beautiful they are, right? Um, but at the same time, the notion of plants as 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 teachers is so much a part of the lens at which I look at the world. When I look at you know tiny little mosses, I can't help but think about living simply um, and relying on each other because that's what they're doing. That's how that's how they're surviving. That's how they're blanketing the world with green is is by relying on each other and by by not ask, asking much from from their environment at all by by living within their ecological means. Um, that's how they live. And and so it's the microcosm of the mosses that you could look at like through a microscope, but then there's the telescope of what it what it means of what would it be like to live like mosses um, and and what could we learn from that kind of of humility um, my it's 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 just a, a truth that you know i i see the world in in those kind of metaphors of of what do plants have 
to teach us. They, they are themselves and they are their lessons all in the same beautiful green package. So that phrase you just spoke, they are themselves and they, and they are sort of what they mean. Uh, you know, I, a couple different directions I'm hoping we can go. The first is to just follow what you see in the mosses again. And you say at one point, and I'm going to quote you back to yourself. I hope that's okay. <laughs> Only uh, if it's good. It, well, you get to decide, but I, I, I think I'm quoting it to you because I think it's good. I hold tight to the vision that someday soon we will find the courage of self-restraint, the humility to live like mosses. And you just talked about the humility. I'm curious about courage. What do you mean by the courage of self-restraint? Why courage? I think separating our needs and our wants and saying to oneself, I have enough, takes some courage because we're surrounded by messages that are constantly telling us that we're not good enough, we don't have enough, that we need, we need to get more. And so it does take courage to, to practice self-restraint against those, those messages. Um, there's also a kind of a courage that comes with real humility. And in, in the Potawatomi way of thinking about humility, of the word edbesendoin, um, we don't mean it in the same way that English does of, of kind of being self-effacing or self-deprecating. Um, what our language teachers tell us that it actually means is that we don't think of ourselves as more important than others, which doesn't mean we're not all really important. Um, but none of us are more important than the others. It's almost an invitation to celebrate the importance of others. Um, and so the courage to recognize that you're, you're not the master of the universe, um, is, is what I mean. Um, just, it's, it's a kind of courage associated with humility and lifting up others rather than, than yourself. You're listening to The Detour with Robin Wall Kimmerer. That brings me back to a phrase that I continue to turn over since I came across it in, I think, first in braiding sweetgrass, and that is democracy of species. Let's talk about democracy, but democracy of species. I want to ask the very simple question. What is democracy of species? What do you mean? Hmm. A way that I like to think about that is maybe with a myth, Adam, given the theme of this, this, this uh, conversation is, you know, this myth of human exceptionalism, as if human people were at the top of this fictional pyramid, um, a pyramid of, of intelligence, a pyramid of entitlement, a pyramid of, of who, who is inspirited and who is not. Um, we tend to think of ourselves as, as the pinnacle of creation and all the rest of the beings are below us. That, of course, is not a democracy of species. That's kind of a, a hierarchical dictator who thinks of all the others as below him or her and lesser than. Whereas the democracy of species to me means not a fictional pyramid, but, but like a beautiful spider web of connection or a, a big circle in which all the beings are relatives. They're all equal, not the same as each other. They're all gloriously different, but they have the same claim to the wealth of, of, of the world. And they, they have the same rights to be that, that human people do. By a democracy of species, I mean living in such a way that we recognize the beingness of each other, the personhood of each other, and that, that we all have a right and a responsibility and a gift to bring to the whole. And that's what democracy is to me, is, is doing your part, knowing that you're connected and giving back in return 
for everything that you've been given. To me, that's democracy of, of upholding each other. And I, I want to live in a world where salamanders have, have rights, where, where redwoods have rights. That's what I mean by the democracy of species. It's funny. I was going to the salamanders in my head when you, when you mentioned them. I was going to that moment when you described being out there with your students. Mm -hmm. And in a way, the challenge of wanting to measure how cars are affecting the salamander population and at the same time wanting to save the salamanders that are crossing the road. And the tension between let's do this Let's do this science well, which means let's not mess with what's happening. Let's measure it. And on the other hand, can't we stop these cars or pick up these salamanders and move them across? And so there I do want to ask about that felt like a metaphor as well as what it was, the tension between measuring and understanding and intervening. Yes. To make a difference. Yeah. So, and it's partly the tension between looking at the world as, as oftentimes scientific method asks us to do, always asks us to do, is to consider the world as object. And the desire to intervene out of compassion for those salamanders considers the world as subject. And, and, and Western science in the form of knowledge generation kind of asks us for that objectivity. And in that, in that the case of those rainy night of trying to save salamanders, I think there's also the sense that there are multiple ways to save salamanders. We, we could, as we did, pick them up and carry them across the road. But I think we also save salamanders by doing good salamander science. Because when we talk to policymakers, and we want to have, have have culverts put in or roads closed so that salamanders can safely migrate. We live in a world where they're not going to say, um, you feel badly for those, your kinfolk, the salamanders, therefore we're going to make this change. They listen to data. They listen to evidence. So there is a way in which doing that science saves salamanders in the long run. And so I respect both of those, but they are the, but they're really different impulses. And I think we have to do both. It's not a matter of, of either or, but we have to do both and we have to do them with as much respect and compassion as we can. And thinking about the word reciprocity that you used before, I want to ask the crude question about sort of, what about salamanders orientation toward us? It, like I'm thinking about this idea of the democracy of species and um, if we want to either save, help, measure, and I think I know where you might go with this, but I'm curious how, how do you have a sense of how salamanders might regard or should regard humans? Hmm. What an interesting question. Oh, it's just launching us this wonderful imagining of what that would be to be a salamander crossing the road and saying, who in the world interrupted our soft bed of leaves with asphalt? Where did that come from? Do they even know us? Do they even know us? Are our worlds so different that they, they, they scarcely imagine us? I don't know. I've, I've, honest, I've not done the exercise of, of trying to think like a salamander, but I know that when they, they see very clearly the impacts that we have had on their lives, whether they attribute it to the same beings who are there in a raincoat and a flashlight trying to carry them across the road. I, I don't know. I don't know. But more broadly speaking, I think there's an important philosophical construct of saying that, that we are nonetheless responsible for each other and that just as we view them as, as kinfolk 
you know, deeply othered, you know, as salamanders are deeply different than we are, but can we still have compassion for them and respect for them? I guess I would want them to have compassion and respect for us. And, you know, the other thing I hope that they have for us is forgiveness. Yeah, it's interesting. It's I think it's because this phrase democracy of species got in my head. And then I was and then you say at one point the dictates of the real government, the democracy of species, the laws of nature. And then I, so I was trying to think about the differences between human laws and the laws of nature. Uh, and how it would be easier if they aligned in oh. principle, in practice more, but, it, but like the laws of human laws in democracy, especially, I think it's, it's a law we try to give to ourselves and the laws of nature feel like they're from a larger place. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when, when you say the dictates of the real government, can I just push you to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, in, and in that phrasing, what I really mean are the laws of nature, right? Um, and and absolutely, that's a call for an alignment of, of human-constructed governance and economies to align with the natural laws. And, and, you know, maybe one of the easiest examples of natural law um, that we are so out of balance with in social and economic institutions is this idea of unlimited growth. Right. Every day you hear, oh, well, we in order to be successful, the economy has to grow. Well, that's not a law of nature. Um, in, in natural systems, things can't grow indefinitely. They can't. There's finite limits on, on resources and space and, and light. Unlimited growth is a is a construct of being human centric. We want things to grow so we can have more. Why we need more? It's never always clear. But in natural systems, systems fall apart if they try to grow infinitely. And so, why don't we? Why do we model our economy after something which violates the laws of thermodynamics in a sense? And there are regenerative economies, circular economies that that are much more aligned with the laws of nature, that, that don't demand endless growth and therefore endless extraction and, and exploitation. So I feel like thinking about stories that illustrate larger truth, now I think we're moving in the direction of the Windigo, the story of the Windigo. Mm. And just as you were talking, I was thinking, where does where does the windigo come from? Where does where does a being that is so out of step with the laws of nature come from? What I'm asking is where do we who build these roads and then need to try to save salamanders from our own cars, where do we come from given mm. that we seem to come from nature in some way? How did that rupture seem to develop? Mm. Yeah, there's so many dimensions to your question. Let me let me start with the with with the last latter part of your question. So, where did we where did we get this exploitive mindset? I think that is a direct response to human exceptionalism, to thinking that human beings are are different and superior from all other beings. That. Of course, we can build roads through th through wetlands because those wetlands belong to us. We're in charge here, and it's up to us to do as we wish. Those are, you know, some of the direct ideas from the Abrahamic religions, right, of dominion over over land, and the idea that that humans are at the top of some pyramid, that we alone are, are sacred beings, as opposed to the notion that we're all sacred beings, salamanders and, and, and cattails and, you know, maple trees alike. So where did it come from? I think it comes from that religious tradition, quite honestly, of a, of a separation of, of humans from the rest of our kinfolk. I think as you're talking, I'm thinking about the complexity of reigning in, how, how hard it is to 
uh, do something other than the biological imperative. Mm -hmm. I love your pointing to culture and stories and law as the way we try to do that. And I wonder, do you see that sort of reigning in in other beings as well? Or is it something we most of all, we, we strange humans most of all have to try to do? Hmm. I think that there must be reigning in because all beings subject to evolution by natural selection would be um, manifesting this this uh, will to live, right, to continue and pass on our genes. But how do we explain things like Suzanne Simard's um, wonderful discoveries about the sharing networks that trees have, that, that, that trees who have plenty are sharing with those who don't have enough. Um, they're sharing with their, with their offspring. Um, each, it, it still manifests the evolutionary imperative to pass on your genes to the next generation, but they don't have to be passed on in, in, in your own physical self. They could be passed on in the well-being of your relatives as well. So I can think about mycorrhizal networks and forest networks as, as, as in, as a kind of self-restraint. Um, um, or maybe, maybe it's more a dissolution of the self, that it's not the self that matters. It's, it's the we that matters. Um, and, and, and that's, that's what a lot of ethics and culture suggests too. That's why we have those Wendigo stories to say, you're not alone here. It's not just you that matters. We all need to survive here. And if we share and we're, we're not that, that greedy cannibal Wendigo, then we have a shot at it. Thank you. So Robin, we are moving towards closing this part Already. of the program, which I like the expression you just made. Um, and, you know, we invited people who were going to watch this to, to share questions. And I wanted to ask you, actually, if you lately, these days, whatever these days means, do you feel like you've had a persistent question or two in your head, some question that has recurred? Yes. Yes. And, you know, this is a question that, if I might, I would love to share with your thoughtful audience. And it grows out of the beginning of Braiding Sweetgrass with the story of Sky Woman, where uh, your readers will remember in this creation story, she falls from the sky world to the new world, what, what becomes Turtle Island, right? And brings her gifts there. And so the world unfolds. You know, there are a number of different stories about how she came to fall. There are some stories in which she just slipped. There are some stories in which, shall we say, she was helped along um, because she had work to do, but was reluctant to do it. The question that has been on my mind, knowing strong Native women, I don't guess it was an accident. What if she jumped? My question is, what if she jumped to a new world? And metaphorically, what do we need to do to jump to a new world? You know, so much of the environmental movement, to my mind, has been driven by fear, by looking over our shoulders and saying, wow, something really bad is coming toward us, and they're not wrong. And so you jump to a new world because you're afraid of what's coming and afraid of what you've created. But the world that I want to live in is a world that is so beautiful and whole that you want to jump to it so that you jump because of love, not because of fear. And the question that I have for readers is what do we need from each other to jump?
Robin Wall Kimmerer is a mother, scientist, decorated professor, and enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. Emma Maris is the author of Wild Souls and Rambunctious Garden, Saving Nature in a Post-Wild World. She writes about the human and non-human worlds and the enduringly complex relationships between them for National Geographic, The Atlantic, The New York Times, Wired, and other publications. Emma wrote a piece that we excerpted in the 2022 spring edition of Oregon Humanities Magazine on the theme Care that inspired us to reach out to her. Towards the end of Wild Souls, when you talk about the tension between caring for or being responsible to an individual animal, an individual non-human being, and the larger flow, the species or the larger system, I don't know if that analogy holds up for you, but um, how present as you go through your day is the choice or the tension between this creature right here and ecosystem writ large? I do think that American culture is very hung up on individualism. Um, and, and so I think that there's a needed correction in terms of pushing us towards more, more collectivist thinking and more cooperative modes of, of, of trying to instantiate the world that we want to see. But at the same time, uh, sometimes we can lose sight of the individuality of non-humans. Um, we just think of, a wolf as a member, you know, a unit in a population that we're trying to preserve. And we don't think about the day-to-day experience of that one wolf, you know, what she, what she smelled when she woke up in the morning and what her goals were for the day and whether she was hungry when she went to bed. So I think getting the balance right in any given situation between an individual framework and a collective framework, is just one of the trickiest things. And one of the most interesting things, it's just a it's a tension I just keep coming back to over and over again. Um, in, and, and I think that's natural when, when your focus is the, the environment, right? Because mm-hmm. the environment is, is really just a kind of a boring way of saying this web of relationships that we're all in all the time. Um, and, and navigating that web and trying to sort of do right by the whole web while at the same time trying to sort of love and care for specific nodes in that web. I, I wanted to give you back a sentence from right by the end of your book where you say, uh, this template for decision-making should ideally be undertaken collectively by all the interested parties, perhaps including non-humans in the form of appointed representatives. And there's so much in that sentence. So when you hear that sentence a years back, what do you most go to? Perhaps naively, I wanted to re- leave the reader with some precepts to guide their actions. If they wanted to do right by non-humans in a changing world, how ought they proceed? Um, but I found that some of these ethical conundrums were just, I couldn't give them a simple answer. There, were, there are no simple answers. You know, should you kill a, a fox that is eating endangered species? Um, I can't give you an ethical answer. I, you know, I can't tell you the answer to that because it's not a math problem. It depends on whether you think the individual life of the fox is more important or the the, the lives of the endangered species are more important, and whether you know how, what kind of value you place on endangerment as as a modifier of all of that. Mm-hmm. But the process is really framed somewhat individualistically. Uh, ironically enough, it's uh-huh. something that that you. Adam would go through as you as you as you were trying to figure out what you thought about one of these issues, but in the real world we don't make these kinds of decisions individually unless you are you know kind of there. It's rare the situation where a single individual gets to make these kinds of decisions. Usually and ideally, these would be collective decisions. You know, should we institute? Uh, 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 should we kill the the feral cats in our in our our, our uh, ecosystem here in Australia because they're, they're eating endangered animals. We'd, we'd have to make that decision with a huge number of participants, the Aboriginal people, the local people, the scientists, the people who love cats, the people who love the endangered species. They all would have to have a seat at the table and try to fit, come up with some answers. So, or as I say, 
the cats and the endangered species should ideally have a seat at that table as well, somehow. And there are already kind of, you know, there are are moves in in some legal systems towards this idea of having, of non-humans having rights. And if they have rights, then they're going to need lawyers. (laughs) So, (laughs) So what we're talking about here, when you read that sentence back to me, what I think about is a world with a just world is a world with a lot of meetings in it. And I have never yet figured out a way to get around that fact. Interesting. And also maybe a lot of lawyers. I, I mean, uh, it's interesting. <laughs> or advocates anyway. Advocates. Okay. That seems like a, a somewhat gentler word in a way. It, you're making me think, I used to work seasonally for the forest service and the park service doing trail work. And one summer I worked in, uh, Haleakala National Park in Hawaii. And I was just mm-hmm. doing trail work, but I lived with a couple people who were doing, who were working on native species stuff. And they were studying the Argentine ant, an invasive species. Mm-hmm. But then they got pulled into working with feral cats. And when I say working with feral cats, I mean eradicating feral cats. And right. what that ended up being So I asked them, how do you do this? And what they had done, they had realized that what they thought was the least cruel, most effective and efficient way to do this once they had trapped the cats was that they had created a little mini guillotine. Mm -hmm. And they would behead the feral cats in order to preserve especially native birds. Yeah. Um, And... And I think for me, that was a real awakening to what some of this, what conservation work can look like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for listeners who are more familiar with sort of continental conservation work, um, anytime you get on an island or even an island as large as Australia, a lot of your conservation work suddenly becomes around this, about this kind of thing, which is dealing with these non-native predators who are often the most immediate threat, um, along with habitat loss. Uh, to endanger uh, to native animals, and so you very suddenly have uh, have this incredibly difficult decision to make between, you know, being signing up to kill animals as as part of your environmental practice, mm-hmm. or watching those introduced animals kill the animals that you love and care about as well. Mm-hmm. And then while you were describing the beings that are the non-native threats, it's hard not to think, huh? That's us. So, okay, people will say the real invasive species is humans, and I can see where they're coming from, because what they're trying to point out here is the hypocrisy of us, of us vilifying introduced animals and sort of saying, hey, it's all your fault, you bad cat, or you bad fox, or you bad rat, when really it was humans who moved them there in the first place. And I get that, and I totally understand wanting to expose that hypocrisy. But I don't think that the solution is to then just vilify people. Sure. I think the solution is to really look at this assumption that, ev- that, that every species has one place alone that it should stay in and never leave, mm. and that all non-native species are problematic and need to go home. Um, and I don't think that's how ecology actually works in the long run. The species move around over long periods of time. Now, obviously, the rate of species movement over the last thousand years is massively increased because of humans, because of our incredible busy, busy ways, because of the way like dogs that so we're over here, we're over there, we're kind of moving around. We're, we're very restless and, and we move other species. So it, the rates are vastly different, but long distance species movement, we're not, you know, that's how Hawaii got all its species in the first place. Right. You know, Hawaii was just rocks when it first was born out of the ocean all of the species that are native species that we love and care about so much that your roommates were trying to save from extinction, they all got there somehow too. So species movements are not bad. They are how, they are part of the engine of that creates biodiversity. Um, so saying that, you know, all species movements are bad doesn't work for me. Saying that all species that humans moved are, is bad doesn't work for me either because humans are also animals. We are also natural. We're not aliens from another planet. To me, it becomes a question of, okay, we got these species here now. How are we gonna How are we gonna live together? How How can we structure these relationships so that you know the, we get the results we want, that we reach our goals, that we protect the species we need to protect? That's my starting place. Yeah. Just sort of, I, I really just don't like the invasive, quote unquote, invasive species 
frame them. Yeah, yeah. No, I, that's really clear and powerfully put. And I think the challenge, and maybe this is where we can move towards a close, the challenge is that in a way it feels like us thinking about our role, us thinking about our relationship to whether we're coming from somewhere else or not, here we are. And so that's one of the things in that sentence of yours that I read where you say, perhaps including non-humans in the form of appointed representatives, that it feels like this is the burden of the responsibility that comes with our power. Uh, we're sort of making all these decisions, it sort of feels like. And we're the ones that are trying to repair decisions we've been making for many, many, many years. And that's <laughs> that's challenging and it's hard to be too hopeful about a anything you want to uh, you want to push back on in that somewhat bleak well, characterization. That's, I mean, yeah, actually. Great. Good. That's what I was hoping. Um, yeah, I mean, I I do think that that human activity has been massively, uh, you know, disruptive. Not in the sense of, you know, maybe that's not the best word. Human activity has radically changed the planet in the last thousand years, and in the last ten thousand years, and and even beyond that. Um, humans have just turned out to be an incredibly influential species, making big waves for for good and for ill. Um, and we do have a very strong responsibility as as creatures who can have this kind of these kind of abstract conversations, who can work together and form goals, goals that might not even be achievable in our own lifetimes, that can have that kind of long range thinking. We have an absolute responsibility to try to use our influence, our power, our technologies, all of this stuff for for the betterment of not just ourselves, but for the species that we share the planet with. Having said that, we are not. Uh, by any means smart enough or clever enough or powerful enough to actually dictate what goes on on every corner of the mm -hmm. planet. All the other species uh, are very busy, busy too, uh, living their lives, making their choices, pursuing their own goals. And often we are completely helpless to, um, to control them. So I did a story for National Geographic a couple of years ago about rats. I got interested in rats because of the conservation concerns around rats on islands. Um, but my my story follows them also in New York City and other places where, where humans have been desperately trying to get rid of them for generations with total failure. Like, there's more rats than ever in New York. Um, and there's probably more rats in, in, in Portland than there used to be, too. They, uh, we are not in charge yeah. in, in any kind of way. We are massively influential on planet Earth, and our, our blundering around has, has changed the lives of all the other species. But, but we are by no means masterminds who can, who can sort of dictate what's going to go on. Uh, all these other species are, are, are having their say, too. The real move, the power move here, is to figure out how to live with them, all of us, mutually. Um, the epigram for the book comes from Robin Wall Kimmerer's work, and it says, all flourishing is mutual. And I, I take that so, so literally uh, we cannot flourish without the other species, and I don't think they can flourish without us. We, we're in this together. Emma Maris is the author of Wild Souls and Rambunctious Garden, Saving Nature in a Post-Wild World. The detour is made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities. I'm Adam Davis. Our producer is Kieran Bond. Our editor and engineer is Dave Friedlander. Our assistant producers are Alexandra Powell-Bugden, Karina Brisky, and Ben Waterhouse. Thank you for being with us. See you next time. <laughs>